0: Good morning, welcome, good to see you this morning. Um, When you came in, you may or may not have received, I've got a little insert in there and that insert has um, our mission together with our vision and values. Um, If you didn't get one, I'll try to get you one on the way out just to tell you what it says. It says, our mission is to become the body of Christ, a demonstration of God's beauty, goodness, and truth for the sake of our city. And over the last two weeks, we were talking about goodness and beauty. And this morning, we get a chance to talk about truth. And before we get into uh, the sermon this morning, I thought I would just start talking about some of those values. We're talking about a culture of truth. What does it mean to look like this as a as a church, what kind of church do we wanna be? There's a lot of great churches out there, right? And every church has its own gift and kinda of has its own culture and its own values. And the question we're asking is, this kind of church we're trying to become together, what are those values that we wanna have? And the first one in that subsection of culture of truth is growth and learning. And basically, Christ lived among us as one who is gentle and humble-hearted, and we are seeking to reflect his humility with a constant posture of learning. And so the kind of church we wanna be is the kind of church where we don't think any one of us has it all figured out. And we can be tempted to think we got, we got the whole story and we know the whole truth and we're all good, right? And so what I want you to know is we want you to know a lot of stuff. Like we want you to be on a journey of learning And we hope that this year you're further along than you were last year and that you can, in a sense, feel good about that and feel like, hey, I've learned some stuff and I've grown. And at that, we also want you to have a posture of, I've always got more to learn. And so it's this kind of posture of of this lifelong journey, like we're on a journey of being transformed into the image of Christ and it's going to take our whole life to get there. Like, it's literally not going to be complete until you see Jesus. Then he's going to finish the last part part of it. And probably for a lot of us, there's going to be a lot of last parts of it. I know for me, there's going to be a lot of last parts of it. And so it gives us a posture, not only for what we do here, but what we do in all of life. And so I want to invite you with me to see yourself as a missionary. And if you know anything about missionaries, what a good missionary does is they're a good learner. Learner. Like they show up in a place and they're going to learn from the local people. Like how do they live and how do they speak? What's the language? How do they understand their world? And you might have a different view of the world, but at least be able to articulate the world of your neighbors in the most generous terms, right? And so it's this posture. Not only are we are here to learn from the church and learn from each other as we sang this morning. I love that beautiful song we sang this morning. But we're also, as missionaries, committed to actually learning from the city that God's called us to love. You can't love someone if you don't know them, right? And so we're students of the faith, and we're also students of the culture. Another part about a culture of truth is we value connectedness and continuity. Christ entered our story. He entered the human story. Not only that, he entered a very particular Jewish story and he was willing to own it and live into that tradition which he inherited. And he reshaped that tradition and he taught his disciples how to live into it. And then those disciples went out and taught others how to live in this way that he passed down. And so we recognize that our story is a part of a much larger story. We are a part of an ancient and global family, and our hope is not so much to, to reinvent the church, but to be reinvented by the church, and friends, that for me is clutch. That's what changed it all for me, because I grew up thinking, since you know I came to faith in youth group, if I could just make church cooler for all my friends, and we could just do a few things that were cool, then we could get our friends to come, and they would all believe in Jesus, the thing we wanted to happen, and then the world would be a better place, And at some point, thank God, I was able to learn from wisdom outside of myself that God actually didn't need me to save his church. He didn't need me to to reinvent everything and figure it all out, but that the goal was for me to actually be reinvented. And by that, I just mean shaped by the people of God, the people of the spirit, the people that have been following Christ for the last 2000 years. They have some collective wisdom. They have a way of being in the world. And so we're just trying to live into that pattern. We're not saying that every part of it is good and perfect. We can own the good and the bad. What we're trying to say is what's been handed down from Jesus and how can we live into that? We value this continuity and this connectedness. And that explains why we do really weird things like worship in this way with these really particular symbols in these really particular practices cuz we're not afraid of it just like any family that has got traditions right you go home with you for thanksgiving there's going to be some things that happening you're gonna be like why is this happening now right families have traditions and we live into those we celebrate them we belong to the Angle- anglican church which we understand to be a valid continuous structure of the universal church which was established by the apostles and so we perso- pursue pursue Unity with all those who have been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then the final part of this in our values is multiplication and relationality. And Christ came to bring a message. He came to bring some truth, but how did he do it? Primarily by spending time with his closest followers in relationship teaching him his ways, demonstrating him his ways, kind of in a lab together, like, all right, go out and love each other. Okay, you're not doing a good job. Let's talk about that, right? Let, let me teach you as we walk to Jerusalem what it means to follow me, right? And so what we're talking about here is, in a sense, evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus that we have received. It's good news. We want to get it out there. We want to invite people in. As we've been discipled into the ways of Christ, we want to disciple others. We want them to know the way and the truth and the life, but we recognize that this is primarily a relational activity, that it's about communal formation. And so we're inviting people into this family, into this communal process of growing into Christ likeness. So that kind of rounds out the values that we've been discussing over the last three weeks are really uh, uh, Something I love this week, one of our parishioners sent me an email and said, hey, I want to discuss with you our mission statement and our values. And I love something like that. In the book of Acts, uh, we read, uh, it's in, um, here it is, Acts 17, 11, says, now the Berean Jews were of a more noble character than those of Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness And examined in the scriptures every day to see what Paul said was true. Is there eagerness there? Yes, they're enthusiastic about it. But is there a desire to check this out? Make sure it lines up with the scripture. Make sure it lines up with the faith that we've been handed? Yes, they did the process of discernment. And why we have this printed out in in a folded form for you is that I wanna encourage you to take that home. Stick it in your Bible, and over the next few weeks, read on it, reflect on it, and just do some good Berean style Holy Spirit discernment. Like, where, do, where does this resonate with me? Where are some parts where maybe it's not resonating? What does that mean for me in, the, in my life in this church? I want you to reflect on it. God, how are you calling me to live into this? How, is there something here that I'm especially meant to embody? I want you to encourage you to discern it together as a body, as we lean into these, as people of faith. This morning, we get to talk about truth. Now, for some reason, my wife, Jana, who is also a preacher and a great preacher at that, she thought this one was going to be the easy one. (laughs) And I was like, are you sure this one is the easy one? By the way, she's preaching at Emmanuel uh, this morning, um, our sister church in Decatur. Um, So if you don't like this sermon, just go home and listen to hers. It's going to be really great. That's why I'm telling you that. Um, But for me, I actually had a lot of trouble with this for the fact that I can acknowledge that this word has a lot of baggage in our culture. And it's actually a word that's not only misunderstood in our culture, it's been greatly misunderstood in the church, mostly because the church has adopted the cultural understanding of truth for like hundreds of years. So that now, some of the bad understandings we have about truth in the church are actually old, you know, bad things that came from without the church that are now just almost fixtures. So I'm gonna do my best, by God's grace, to try to start to untangle some of this uh, for us this morning. And I just pray that something goes well as we get into this. When we say that Christians care about truth, we simply mean to say that we care about what is actually real. Christians are not interested in helping you escape from reality. Rather, it is our hope that all people would know reality. God is love. God loves people and wants to be in relationship with them. God so loved the world that he sent his only son that we could be saved by believing in him. Jesus is God. Jesus rose from the dead. These are all truth claims that are core to the faith. There is a subjective or a personal element to each of these claims, and there is also an objective element. The subjective element is that we can receive these claims only by faith. We have to trust in a story, a tradition, something that was passed down. We have to trust and believe the gospel. But then there's this objective element to it that we actually believe these statements reflect reality. They're not simply human contrived ideas as to what God might be like. Jesus is in fact God is the claim. Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. These statements are true only if they are true for everyone and If they are not true, then they are not true for anyone. Now, said in the context of this church service, these statements seem quite uh, uncontroversial, right? Like we're a Christian people and we believe the Christian faith. But once we begin saying these things outside of the church, things become a little more interesting, right? Like we just laid these out on the the break table, right? In the break room at the lunch table, we just laid some of these out at work or, or wherever you find yourself in the public, we start, we start to have a challenge, right? And I would actually guess that for a lot of my non-church friends and a lot of your non-church friends, that if we're talking about things like beauty, they're actually kind of good on that. And even goodness, like, yeah, goodness is great. But once we even use the word, the truth, <laughs> then it's like, w- w- wait a minute, what do you, what's going on here? For decades now, our culture has become increasingly skeptical of truth claims. When I was a kid growing up in the 90s, it seemed like it was only like the liberal academic types that were claiming there's no such thing as objective truth. But now we see folks on the far right doing the exact same thing, right? Embracing postmodern concepts like post-truth. I think it's safe to say that we no longer live in that modern era, the so-called age of reason. We have crossed over into a truly postmodern era. People still believe in certain kinds of objective truth, of course. The Georgia Bulldogs really won the national championship last year, right? It's like it's objectively understood that that happened, right? You probably, some of you saw it with your own eyes, just like When you see uh, the x-ray from the doctor of your friend's broken arm, it's like, okay, I can tell the arm is broken, and we see it in the x-ray, right? You see it right there. It's broken. So we still believe in those kinds of things, but there are certain kinds of truth claims that we have become especially skeptical of, especially in the areas of morality and religion. We live in a world of you do you and speak your truth and that's good for you, and I'm happy for you. But just don't try to push that on anyone else, right? No one is actually going to make fun of you for being a Christian because they're also not going to make fun of you for buying healing crystals in your home, right? Or, or following your horoscope or, or astrology or whatever it is, right? Uh, because these things now occupy the same place in our culture, Things that they're good for you if you believe them and you feel that they help you. And so everybody's kind of good with that. And yet this morning, we are confronted with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in John 14 that Deacon Gerald read for us this morning. I am the way and the truth and the life. Notice Jesus doesn't say I am a way, a version of the truth and a source of life it's the way the truth and the life and if this isn't true then the statement isn't important if Jesus was deranged or simply misguided then we can simply dismiss this kind of statement and get on with it but if it is true then it's important news not only for you but for everyone to know And so how do we, in our time, in a day like today, make sense of this claim of Jesus to be the truth? How do we make sense of it in a time when all truth claims are held with suspicion? How can we know that the Christian faith is true? I want to talk about, a little bit, about knowing this morning. And this, of course, is going to give me another opportunity to write on the board before we move into our new space, which if you know anything about me, you know I love that. Um, I hope you guys can stick with me. It feels like this is a little like complicated, right? Like A lot of times when I preach, I like to talk about a Bible verse. Let's talk a little bit about it. Next Bible verse. Let's just keep moving through the passage. But the, way, the reason we got to spend so much time talking about this, friends, is that that word truth means something to you. And for a lot of us, what that word means has more to do with things we've absorbed than uh, things the Christian faith would want us to know. And so I want to talk a little bit about what it means to know. Now, for some reason, the, Christian, the English language has one word where a lot of languages have two words. I don't know. It's pretty inefficient. But in a lot of languages, uh, there's this division in knowledge. And so a lot of like in Spanish, I think you would go with saber or in German, wissen. I don't know if you guys are familiar with those language. And then over here, you would have like conocer in Spanish or um, kennen in German. And basically, this kind of knowledge here is an impersonal knowledge. It has to do with facts or data. Data is data, at least the way we think about it. You know, it's just, it is what it is. Whereas over here, this is about more personal knowledge. It's recognition of people Or places that you have become familiar with. So over here, the idea is that knowledge is in search of universal knowledge. Knowledge that is not what you could call over here particular. Or, Or you might say local. Seems true somewhere, but doesn't seem true everywhere else. This is the kind of knowledge, especially that the the Greek philosophers were interested in. And when we use like the Greek word logos that we have in John 1 and Greek thought, it's like the logic, right? It's like the logic of the universe. And so we're trying to understand what's the logic of how everything works? What's the theory that's going to explain it all, right? And so let's imagine if we had a picture The picture here of how to get this knowledge would be a person um, maybe in a special suit so that they don't, don't contaminate a scientist, and they're in a suit, and they're looking through a microscope. And so there's this thing that they're trying to study that's kind of outside of them, right? So it's very impersonal. Like they're maybe they've got a protozoan under the microscope and they're trying to look at it and learn more about it. Right? They're not interacting with the protozoan. In fact, if they interact with it is going to be a problem. Right? They want to kind of observe it. So you can think of a person with a microscope over here, and then the picture here that I imagine is a couple. Maybe they're in their 80s. Maybe they're retired. And maybe they're sitting at a table and they both have a cup of coffee in hand and maybe they're staring into each other's eyes and maybe they're saying something or maybe they don't have to because they've lived so many decades together and they just have this intense personal knowledge of each other, right? It's a very storied knowledge, right? And so we have these two ideas of what knowledge is like. In this type of knowledge, we are in control as we set out to learn, right? In fact, we're the ones asking the questions, right? We ask the questions. And knowledge then is the result of our own achievement. Like we asked a good question, we did a good experiment, and now we know the answer. This is going somewhere, guys, and it has to do with the Bible. Trust me, we're going to get there. Over here, well, it, we're not—we're not in full control. Why? Because we can ask the questions, but we can be asked, right? The subject might ask us, sitting across from the table, a question, and now suddenly we have to answer. We're not in the space to suit with the, with the microscope, right? We can ask, but we can also be asked, and so here, knowledge is a gift. Nobody can even read it because it's behind the altar, sorry, but I'm writing it. I'll, I'm going to look at it again later remember what I wrote. Here, knowledge is a gift of self-revelation. I might not tell you everything about me. I might not want to show you some things. It might take a long time for us to get to know, know me before I'm going to share some deep things about myself, right? And so in this setting, it's something that we kind of attain on our own. Here, we understand knowledge as more of a gift. So let's talk about how we came to think how we think currently about truth. For a long time, at least in the West, in the Christian era, we had things like that would belong, I would say, more to this side. What we could call tradition and revelation, and so we believe that God revealed Himself to us. God showed Himself in a very personal way, what He was like in the person of Jesus, right? And actually, a lot of science, uh, in philosophy, and everything stemmed kind of from, from a lot of those ideas in the West. But at some point came along around the 1600s. I would say this is from the 1600s to around, I don't know, 1950. We have what we could call the modern era. I realize there's some people here with a PhD that could, you know, I'm going to tell you the most simplest terms that I can. And, uh, and if you want to clear this up with Andrew when we're done. And in the modern era, it wanted to to try to figure out how can we know what we know. And there was this this problem of skepticism. And the idea was we're going to push away all of this kind of personal experience. And we can't trust in stories. And we're going to try to doubt everything except the thing that cannot be doubted. And that's why Descartes says, I think, therefore, I am. I am a doubting person. And if I am doubting, I must really exist. And so that... Doubt then becomes the starting point of all knowledge in the age of reason. It's based on doubt and skepticism. And I have it over here because it's a, it's a strong, whereas I would say there probably was a sense in which knowledge kind of lived here in the middle for a long time. There was a strong push towards we want to know what impersonal knowledge is, and all actually real knowledge is impersonal. It's outside of us. It's timeless. It's universal. It's this this kind of impersonal sense of truth, right? And this is where it went for a really long time. And this actually produced some really great things like penicillin and airplanes, iPhones. A lot of good stuff comes out of like, you know, this produced like modern science and has done some really cool, really cool things that we all like and enjoy and just kind of live in. But at some point, this whole project began to break down. Scientists, philosophers, they began to realize that there were actually big limits to what we could know and absolutely know. And then one philosopher at kind of, uh, you know, it's going to swing over into what I think we can call now the postmodern era. And, you know, starting dates are arbitrary, but probably starts around the 1900s to present day. And so you have one philosopher saying things like, you know what? We can't really know ultimate truth. And all truth claims are actually just power grabs. It's all about power. So the one who defines truth is the one who is in power. Does that sound familiar? That's pretty much today. We're not even talking about what's true. We're only talking about power, right? And so it's the idea that all these things are relative and that basically every point of view is just another, is just exactly that. It's not exactly true. It's just your point of view. There is no truth that exists outside of a tradition. All truth is storied. Even science itself is a story and a worldview. And in this paradigm, personal experience is all we can know. And so truth is fragmented. And so there's no such thing as public truth or our truth, only your truth and my truth. And so whereas in the modern era, we swang super far in that way, and the postmodern, the pendulum swung back almost as far as we could imagine in the opposite direction. And so the question you might be having right now Okay. Oh, by the way, I should just say this. Uh, a big reason why it's important to name this and as it, it, weird as it seems like naming all these words in a place like church is that so much of the church, oh, well, let me just say this. Uh, the idea of America comes out of this. So the enlightenment is built on these truths that come out of doubt, that come out of skepticism, that, that come out of rationalism. And so the idea of America comes out of that. And uh, our friend theologian Stanley Harrows said that Protestants in America tried to make America Christian, but they made uh, Christianity—I'm sorry, Christianity America. Yes, exactly. They they made Christianity America. Basically, what I'm trying to say by that is, in America, the church has become so syncretized with the way of this kind of thinking. That what a lot of us think about as the faith or Christian is so connected with ideas that come from Descart- Descartes in this. And then what's happening is the whole culture is swinging back over here and people in the church are losing, losing their minds, or they were over the last couple of decades. And what, what people like me want to say is, don't worry, a lot of that stuff was never like the faith that Jesus passed down to us. Of course, it's swinging in an opposite direction, but we were in bed with these like rationalistic enlightenment ideas and Jesus didn't come to bring us the, the rational enlightenment. So here we got the, the, the postmodern era. And so part of why it's important to name this is so much if, if, if we grew up, I would say in fundamentalist traditions, certainly thinking in terms of like certainty and absolute truth. And then also in the, the greatest of the liberal traditions, like German, German liberalism is all, German liberals invented this. Descartes was French, but all the rest of them, Kant and Nietzsche and all those other folks, those are German liberal theologians that invented what we know as modern day atheism. We, We started it. All right, we are going somewhere, and it has to do with the Bible, and it has to do with Jesus. Let me say two things that we aren't saying. We aren't saying that following Jesus, when we say Jesus is the truth, we are not saying that following Jesus is a matter of absolute certainty. This is the age of reason. The only things that we know to be true are things which can be scientifically proven beyond all reasonable doubt. And so, when we mix that kind of thinking with the Bible, we get the missed, misguided attempt of well meaning modern Christians to do this to produce some argument for Christianity. That every rational person would have to give into without faith or without trust or without grace or without revelation. It's evidence that demands a verdict, right? Scientific evidence, and you gotta come to a verdict on it, right? Now I'm not saying there's anything wrong with apologetics that can be helpful as far as the helpful, right? But if my attempt is to somehow rationally approve the faith to you where you don't actually have to put your trust in Jesus, something's gone very different from what's happening in the Bible. So we aren't saying that. And then I also want you to know that we aren't saying that following Jesus is a matter of personal choice that may or may not be right for you. I'm not saying that either. This would be the age of relativity. Do what seems meaningful and right to you, no one besides you can decide what's right for you. And this is the misguided attempt of well-meaning postmodern Christians to make Christianity less offensive to the world, to follow Christ on our own terms, to imagine that the claims of Christianity are only true for those who believe them. it turns out that Christians are people who have come to trust a story. And that story begins like this. In the beginning was the word, the logos. And the word was God. And the word was with God and was God. He was there in the beginning and all things came into being through him. And with him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being, uh, I'm sorry, what has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. Now, at this point, it could sound like we're talking about the impersonal objective truth of Greek philosophy. And we kind of almost are. And then we read the words. And the word became flesh. And lived among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of, his, of the father's only son, full of grace and truth. Friends, in the incarnation, the eternal truth, the unknowable, the ultimate, the eternal truth becomes a person in human history. The eternal logic of the universe took on human flesh and walked into the room and says, hello, hello. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you know me, you will know my Father. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And if we can think about the Father as representing ultimate reality, knowledge that is inaccessible to our senses, because it is something we could have never discovered with scientific inquiry, we had no way to the Father, but the gospel. Jesus came to us to show us the way to the Father. And Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. And it's a very serious moment, and so we're going to shut off our phones right now. People, people from Emmanuel are trying to text me during the sermon. Don't they know? All right. It must be going good. I'm getting like high fives from Michael Dalton over there. It's like a Twitter service where you get real-time updates on what's going on. Not what we're going for, actually. That's not a part of the values, just so you know. We want to be focused and in the room together and attentive to what the Spirit is doing. And uh, we blame it on modernity, right? Came with the iPhone. So all that. If you, right now, you just blame everything on Descartes. That's like the, the strategy, uh, you blame him for everything. Um, if you guys read some books, you know that. All right. Um, so what are we talking about? Truth and Jesus. And so Jesus says, hey, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so we have that question, right? Is, is reality, is truth impersonal and objective or is it personal and subjective? And in that question, Jesus walks in and says, I am the truth. And so it means that truth is not only person, but truth is a person. Truth is Jesus. And so this must then mean that truth can only be known in the story, in the story of Jesus, in the scriptures and in the gospel. And then it also means that truth can be personal and at the same time universal. Because Jesus is a person, you can relate to him, but he's also the eternal logos through which everything was created. And so it is a sense in which truth is relative, but it's relative to Jesus. All truth, everything relates to him from where it came. Fourthly, this also means that knowing truth requires grace and revelation Remember, we said down here when I wrote below the altar and you couldn't read it, that personal knowledge is a gift because it requires self-disclosure, right? We don't know God because of our own achievements. We aren't the smart scientists that figured out what he's like. Not at all. We had no clue. But God, in his grace, sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to show us what God is like. That means that by revelation, we can know things. This is what revelation means, that God shows himself to us. And so this is the important thing about truth and the way it's used by us in our context. When we say we know the truth, we can only say that with great humility and gratitude for God's self-disclosure, right? It's not because we're the smart ones. We say that in just great humility. Like, somehow I have come to know the truth. I've come to recognize the truth because God has showed himself. And I'm just humble and I'm grateful for that. I'm not like proud. I'm not like, look how great I am. Look how smart I am. Look, you know, it's nothing like that. It's great humility and gratitude. The closing thought I want to leave you with is another passage. Read John's gospel, Talks so much about truth, it's so beautiful. John 16, 12, Jesus is talking to his disciples before he leaves them and he says this to them, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Friends, believing that Jesus is the truth does not mean that we have it all figured out. It does not mean that Jesus has like downloaded the sum of all important truths into our minds so that we have everything we need to know about God and to know about life and what the future is going to be like. No, it's actually nothing like that. It's actually more like a walk of faith where we aren't exactly sure what comes next. It's an unfinished story, right? The gospel is about an unfinished story. Yes, we have the finished work of Christ, but he's not done, right? We're believing in a resurrection to come, right? The life in the world to come is what we say every week when we confess the creed. And so we're looking forward to something. And so we can only receive ultimate reality by faith. Like we're trusting that we're living in a story and that God is gonna be faithful to unfurl the story. Like it's gonna go in the way that he said it would go. And so all I'm trying to say is that when we say things like, I know the truth, we can say that and at the same time say, the spirit of truth is guiding me into truth. Like I know truth, but I'm still being guided into it. It means again that we're always learning. We're always growing. It means that the truth is both our source of origin and our final destination. It's the logos from whence we come and the spirit is leading us forward into truth. We don't have to be the people who think we have it all figured out. Jesus, the truth has come for us. He has given us his spirit. And so let us walk together and invite others along on the journey toward the truth our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to invite you now into a moment of reflection as we ask the spirit of truth what he would want to say to us in this time.